Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's One Million by One Million podcast. One Million by One Million, as you know, is the first and only global virtual accelerator for startups in the world. Our mission is to help a million entrepreneurs reach a million dollars and beyond in annual revenue. And in support of that mission, we do these podcasts as well as a variety of other things. And I would like you to definitely check out our online roundtables every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific. Please go to the website 1mby1m.com and sign up to pitch or to participate. And we look forward to strategize on your ventures. Today, we are talking with Charlie O'Donnell of Brooklyn Bridge Ventures. Charlie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So let's start by getting acquainted. Tell us about Brooklyn Bridge Ventures as well as yourself and what what is your focus? Sure. So Brooklyn Bridge Ventures is a seed fund uh, based in Brooklyn, New York. It's actually the first fund to be located in Brooklyn. And I've spent the vast majority of my career in the venture capital asset class. So, in fact, nearly the entirety of my career, which is actually pretty rare. Usually people start off as as founders or they they come from another industry. Um, It's it's not usually something that you apprentice your way up, but that's what I did. I actually started at the General Motors Pension Fund as an institutional investor in funds. And mm-hmm. we would been investing in the asset class well before I was there, since like 1978 and all of the top Silicon Valley and, and, and Boston area funds. And uh, that's what led me to working at Union Square Ventures as their first analyst, because Union mm-hmm. Square actually pitched us back in 2004 with their first fund. Uh, from Union Square, I did some startup stuff on my own and, and returned to venture to help first round capital open up their New York office, which uh, I worked with them for about two years before going off on my own and, and starting Brooklyn Bridge. And at Brooklyn Bridge, we fund um, early stage companies in New York across a wide variety of industries, mostly but not all tech. And basically the criteria is if the company has yet to raise $750,000 in a previous round, then uh, I'm open to taking a look. So um, what is the size of your fund? The second fund that I'm investing out of is a $15.5 million fund. And what is the size of investments that you like to make? Uh, about uh, three to four hundred thousand dollars. Okay. And uh, what types of ventures do you like to invest in? Industry sector? Is it B two B, B two C? What uh, What is your sweet spot? It is probably the most diverse portfolio you will find. I am invested in everything from B two B SaaS to uh, consumer electronics products like uh, Canary or Gotenna to um, brick and mortar uh, like The Wing or Ample Hills Creamery to um, a, a organic waste processing facility called Industrial Organic. So it's, uh, it's a bit all over the board. Mm-hmm. So um, 
you know, our work is entirely in IT and IT-enabled services. So let's um, kind of focus the rest of our conversation on that sector of your sure. investments, whether it's B2B SaaS or consumer or whatever, but that, that's where we're going to focus the rest of the conversation. And within okay. that, I'd like to also explore a bit more your stage um, preference. You said that you like to invest in companies that have raised a maximum of 750K prior to your participation. Is that, did I get that right? Yeah, basically. I mean, we briefly talked about it before the, the call, and you referenced the wide variety of terms that people use around early stage investing, seed, pre-seed, just way too many to keep track of, and, and frankly, they're inconsistent. And so what I was looking for was sort of a, a very clear, hard and fast rule uh, where somebody could very easily understand whether or not they were the stage that I was looking for. And I basically use funding as a proxy. And uh, so it's... And what is the minimum then? If you use funding as a proxy, 750 max, what is the minimum that has gone into a company? Or what is the, what are the metrics? Well, zero. zero. Okay. So, so you would do pre-seed. You would do concept stage. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Any, anything where you have yet to you know, spend over that money. Basically what I'm trying to do is work with the founder as they spend their first million dollars, um, okay. if you want to think about it that way. And so, okay. yeah, I've done PowerPoints, and, uh, you know, I actually even think that my investment in TinyBop was before a PowerPoint. I'm not even sure that that oh, had a PowerPoint at the time. So, uh, okay. yeah, it's pretty early. Great. And what about geography? What uh, What are your constraints? What are your focus areas? I've got to be able to bike to the company. So that basically means New York City. New York City. Okay. So within IT and IT-enabled services, could you help our entrepreneurs with some more specifics of what do you think are good opportunities that you are looking to invest in? What trends are you excited about? What, you know, what technologies are you interested in right now? Well, actually, I consider entrepreneurs to be a lot more knowledgeable about this stuff than uh, investors. And so I would caution founders to avoid trend following because when you think about it, the time it takes for a company to go from, from concept to first product is oftentimes, you know, six months to a year. Uh, the time it takes for a concept or product to turn into a company that would exit for a venture capital sized exit could be five, six, seven, eight, nine years. And so, you know, it's, it's very hard to win by catching super specific, you know, sort of micro trends. Now, within certain trends, you look at something like AI or whatever, um, there are perfectly fantastic use cases for that technology and there are other really bad ideas in it. And so, um, you know, I, I tend not to be sort of a trend follower and to be opportunistic and, and really expect the founder to come to me and say, let me tell you what's going on in my industry and, you know, here's why 
I can create value. And, and I consider myself more of a, a learner than predictor. Yeah, you know, uh, I was talking to John Steinberg up in uh, Seattle. He's one of the most prolific in investors in the Northwest. He's invested in 300 companies. And um, he was saying one of the things, one of the issues that drives his investment, one of the drivers of how he chooses which an entrepreneur that he wants to engage with is what he wants to learn about. And uh, for example, right now, he's not very knowledgeable about Bitcoin and he's interested in learning about Bitcoin and he's interested in entrepreneurs who are working on new opportunities in Bitcoin to, as a mechanism of understanding that trend. So, so yes, I think... Uh, investors do look to entrepreneurs to educate them and and uh, and train them which is what, which is what was driving my question is that are there specific areas where you are looking to learn more about because of what you have seen so far or because of what's going on in the macro environment anyway you have answered the question sure. so let's reverse the question and see what trends are you seeing in your deal flow that can be extrapolated as trends? Um, well, you know, there are a lot of, uh, you know, kind of what I would say, you know, me too deals around things that I'm, I'm not sure are full companies or not sure where the application of the technology is sort of a, a, a catch-all. I mean, you know, for example, you think about uh, chat and voice and, and, and bots, for example. Um, you know, I, I look at voice-controlled interfaces as obviously something that is going to be very, very important over time. Now, yep. what's a, a little bit less clear is is that going to be feature of all of the platforms that we currently work on you know will will apple decide that siri is going to really open up for developers and so you know i'll control everything from you know dropbox to salesforce uh using siri or will there be some other provider or api level uh to that technology and you know, the thing is, is that I don't think startups have sort of a natural advantage in that, that area because a lot of some of these new technologies with AI or voice or whatever, they, they really depend on data for training. And some of the larger platforms have a natural advantage. You know, Google and, and, and Apple process more data and language and behavior uh, Facebook, similar lines, and you know can really understand the user a lot better than um, than, a, than a startup can. So for a lot of those investments, there may be some acquisitions that platforms will pick up technologies to make their platforms better. But it's it's hard to see some of these as uh, standalone use cases. Yeah, there's uh, always that litmus test of is it a feature or a company, right? Yeah, and I'm seeing a lot of those in the in the voice area. Um, mm -hmm. I would say the other area um, that I'm seeing, you know, sort of a, a fair amount is in uh, things related to security. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think security, I think people really underestimate 
how important security will be going forward to some other technologies. So, for example, people have asked me about what do I think about autonomous vehicles? And, you know, I, I really don't think we're going to get to autonomous, uh, autonomous vehicles unless we can secure those vehicles from outside hacking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you can't have an army of uh, cars on the street uh, exposed uh, to, to bad actors. And, yeah, and so, um, you know, I think those are really, really important considerations. I think, you know, the advice I would give to founders in those types of areas, is some of the advantages that those founders have created are highly technical. And I think it's important to realize that not every investor that you come upon is going to be an expert in your particular um you know, vertical, right? And so coming at somebody with industry jargon or, or something highly technical, I think it's important to help somebody understand, okay, here's the way everyone's been developing this problem prior. Here's the way I'm going about it. Let me use an, an analogy, uh, you know, something that, you know, a, a non-scientific investor can sort of understand why you're going to create uh, an advantage because, you know, that same ability is going to affect your ability to get PR, to make sales and marketing hires. If no one understands what it is that you're doing, it's sort of tough to build a successful business. Yeah. There's so many pictures that I see that where it's, you know, full of jargons and full of mumbo-jumbo and you can't understand what the hell they're doing and it's really, really hard to do anything with those. And it's very hard to get customers to understand what the hell they're doing. Sure, sure. (laughs) <laughs> so how do you process the current investment camp climate where capital is moving further and further upstream? You know, some of the funds that I'm sure in your previous life, um, you know, pension funds were investing in are becoming gigantic funds. And, uh, of course, as a result, they have to move upstream and deploy larger chunks of capital right away. So how does a seed investor mitigate the Series A gap? Well, um, I I think, you know, for every fund that you've seen move up, you have some set of funds that, you know, sort of fills in that space. I think the, the capital environment is pretty efficient. Um, You certainly have Series A funds that sort of insist on deploying, you know, call it 8 to $20 million at a, at a Series A chunk. And, and obviously there's sort of a, you know, a stage issue that uh, it's very hard to get a seed-funded company from, you know, their initial check to um, the position where they can take on a $10 million investment. Yeah, um, this used to be... That that amount used to be a Series B, Series C kind of amount, and now yeah. that's often the preferred Series A amount. So, yeah, no, ex- exactly. However, you have a fair amount of larger seed funds that are more than willing to do a a second seed or a seed plus, or yep. you get this sort of pre-seed seed determination. I mean, somebody once told me that at least for enterprise SaaS that it was very hard to get a company to 100 to 150K in monthly MRR without spending $3 million. 
And the reality is that most seed-funded startups in the enterprise space don't get $3 million right off the bat. Right. And so somehow you have to fill that. But, you know, for for every fund like mine that might be willing to take a chance on a, you know, pre-seed investment and participate in a 750K or, you know, million-dollar round, there are a whole bunch of funds that have gotten to, you know, $100 million size that are that are writing checks of a million dollars. And they're more than happy to do that for companies that have 25, 30, you know, 50K in MRR and, and really getting to that Series A is, is more of a math problem than a uh, technology risk. But how do you take, uh, you know, what is your strategy to, uh, you know, maintain your position and not get diluted? So you, you go into a deal like that and, and let's say it takes four rounds of financing before a, you know, real um, venture round. By the time your company, your investment has gone to a full-fledged venture round, four years have passed and, and um four rounds of funding has happened. How um, do you then sell at the Series A point or do you hold on? No. Because your fund is pretty small. Yeah, and, and for a small fund, dilution doesn't matter. Um, the only thing that matters is your going in price and your exit price. Um, dilution only matters when you are an asset manager needing to put large, of cap- or large amounts of capital uh, to work. And so... You know, you have uh, a larger fund and, and you literally just need to own a certain percentage of your winners to make your fund math work. Yeah, but if you if you have a, not every company is a winner. If you get buried under liquidation preference, it will absolutely matter. Uh, well, it matters to the extent that obviously if you have an IPO, you would have loved to own more of it than you did if you only participated in seed round. But just the math of a $15 million fund is that you roughly need to create about a billion dollars of total enterprise value uh, to return a 3x to investors. So if you pull that math apart, right, the average M&A transaction uh, for a tech company is about $250 million, right? So the average win is not a unicorn. The average win is something a lot smaller than that. Well, if 10% of your 30-deal portfolio drives most of your return, you're talking about three winners, three winners that, that exit for the average, which is $250 million. Well, that gets you $750 million right there. And, you know, maybe you get a handful of 50s and a 20 and a 30 and then a couple of deals that return capital and then, you know, half of the portfolio becomes a zero. That's what gets you up to a billion dollars. And with that very reasonable math, you actually don't need to do follow-on investments and protect ownership. And you can still return 3x to your investors, which is something that most funds don't do at all. It becomes a lot more difficult when you have a $500 million fund. And even if you had 20% ownership and you had $2 billion outcomes, you still haven't even returned capital to your LPs. So the economics on a small fund are very, very different. 
Um, so your strategy, your strategy is to basically not worry about the ones that are not really making it and will have to raise money with liquidation preference where you don't have the negotiating leverage. Focus on the ones that will get to a decent exit, let's say a $200, $250 million exit, and you need a f- three of those to make your fund economics work. That's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, very much. I very much have very equal weighted bets across my portfolio. I do call it 80 to 90% of my total investment up front. And which is a real um, deviation from the way that most fund managers work on it. But if you, the way to think about my fund is, if you had a hundred million dollar seed fund, right? What percentage of that fund goes into the seed round? Just those dollars, right? So if you're following on three to one or four to one, you're really talking about at most, you know. 20% of the fund, maybe 15% of the fund uh, going into that seed round and the rest of those dollars being when you, you double down, quote-unquote, on your winners, your, your A rounds, yeah. your B rounds. I think those, rounds, those yeah. are not seed funds. I think $100 million funds really are those small Series A funds that are filling in the gap of the real Series A that's moving upstream. Uh, well, I think they're, I would, they're right, right now there are a round. lot of, uh, just a second, there are a lot of companies in the $50 to $100 million fund size range that are trying to fill in that gap of the one to one to $3 million Series A. Um, well, it's mean, more would, the would, sub-50 that are doing the seed, the real seed. Yeah, sure, but I mean, I would still, then, then if you're saying $100 million funds are not seed funds, you're saying that, First round capital and soft tech and Leo Ventures are no longer seed funds because that's no, the they're not. They're, they're not. They're not doing real seed, right? They're doing more okay. the, the small series. It's series A has bifurcated to small series A and large series A, and they're doing the small series A's. Hey, you said it, not me. <laughs> it's a fact. Whether I say it or you say it, it's a fact. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, I think uh, fund size definitely has an impact on the stage. Of course. In, right? And, uh, you know, it's it's uh, a matter of where you get that first check from. And it's it can be very frustrating for a founder if, you know, a fund you might have pitched five or six years ago for your first check, you know, says, come back, you're too early this time around. And and I've never told a company that they're too early. Uh, I've told lots of companies I don't think they have good ideas, and I've been plenty wrong, uh, but too early is not something that uh, exists good. in my world. So how do you parse unicorn mania? You know, <laughs> we are based in Silicon Valley, and, and there is this mad rush. Everybody thinks they're going to fund a unicorn. Well, you know, first and foremost, there aren't that many unicorns. Unicorns, by definition, are rare. So if 500 micro VCs want to all fund unicorns, that's like a mathematically untenable equation. And then the next question is, as a um, seed investor, you could get buried under later stage liquidation preferences. If you are mm-hmm. playing this game of this ultra-heavily funded companies, how do you protect yourself? Well... It does feel, and, and maybe, you know, sort of New York is different, but, but, you know, I still read the sort of national press and whatever. And it does feel like in the last, I don't know, call it six months, I feel like the 
the late stage valuation chasing game uh, seems to have died down a bit. I think we've seen it slowed down. Hasn't died down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I've seen, you know, we've seen a number of down rounds. Right? Companies like Postmates or you know others who uh, were sort of unable to maintain you know, a billion dollar plus valuation or, or raising on a lower round or what have you. And then we've seen, you know, several companies go, go public and and come down from their private valuations when going public. And so I feel like, yeah. you know, the chase for the big valuation number, um, you know, is, is not as much as it was before. And I think one of the, the other drivers of that is, is Uber, frankly, that, you know, for you know, five or six years, every six months, there was another huge news story on the valuation of this one company that got disproportionate coverage about yep. you know, what the latest valuation was. And now, you know, we've got some growing pains. I mean, I still think, you know, I'm not a late-stage investor, right, so I don't have any insight into their financials or whatever, but it still seems to me that whenever they go public or what have you, that, that I'm sure, you know, most of the investors will, will be satisfied. Um, maybe not the, the later people in, but um, I'm sure most of the early folks. But um, it, it does seem that, you know, they, they've sort of reached a point in which you're not going to see, you know, eight more rounds of ever-increasing valuations. And so, you know, the, the ability to constantly write these big number news stories has, has come down a bit. And so, you know, for, for me, you know, I don't really think that I could predict which companies are billion-dollar companies versus which companies are standalones or, or $250 million, $500 million deals. I think what, what tends to happen is most ideas, if you can pick a winner, you're essentially picking something that's a that's a $250 million exit. And and what you get above that is either they, they happen upon a trend or they're just funded to be big, right? Where you, you have, you know, if you look back to like a company like Twitter, where you say, okay, well, you know, Twitter clearly had some value in the social ecosystem, but it didn't. Is, was it predictable to have $10 billion of value? Well, you know, if you keep funding a company and you keep pouring dollars into features and salespeople or whatever, you can certainly fund a company to be larger. But that's, that's kind of a different track. That's not something that um, a VC can predict at the outset, that this is going to be a company where someone's going to come along and want to put a $500 million round into. That's a little more harder to predict. Yeah, but that's happening. It has happened, and, and there, it has also caused a bunch of debt by overfunding, as I call it. We've covered quite a bit of debt by overfunding stories. And, and in some cases, these are very unfortunate scenarios where a perfectly reasonable company that could have had a reasonable level of success, even conclusion, including a good exit and everything, just unnecessarily died due to this overfunding and overaggressive uh, attempt at executing at levels that it was not structured to be nasty gal is a very good example. This company was had bootstrapped to about $100 million in revenue, and then it just basically died out of overfunding and poor execution at that level. Oh, sure. 
sure, Fab was the same way. You know, at the onset, Fab was a company that was making yeah. money, and, and yeah. consumers really liked it. There was an original model there. And then, yeah. you know, when they, um, you know, leaned in heavy in the funding and the infrastructure or whatever, and they, they built the company in such a way that um, it required more and more funding and more overhead. And with that slowed down, you know, things really had a, a domino effect there. But yeah. to answer an earlier question that you had about selling into rounds, you know, I think, like, it's a fair question. And, you know, if one of my companies raised a round at a billion-dollar-plus valuation, but it was only three years in, uh, first of all, that'd be amazing. It'd be great. Um you know, for a fund, for a $15 million fund, you, you have to really seriously ask yourself whether or not you should be taking some money off the table at this point. Yeah. Because every, think, every round that you don't, you I are think, saying... You know, the other experience we have, we have this, we observe some entrepreneurs, you know, entrepreneurs are also, they start off somewhere and then they get intoxicated with this whole funding thing, right? So if, so if they are hitting their stride and everybody is chasing them and offering them money and bigger and bigger valuations, it goes to their heads and, and they want to keep raising money and so forth. At that point, if you get into a situation like that, it's probably for a small fund, it's perfectly okay to sell out and, and just take the money off the table at that point. I also think there's a little bit of a difference in terms of what goes on in geographies. You know, one of the things I, I noticed that I, I feel like in the Valley, the goal is to be at the top of the heap of the startup world, right? It's a, it's a focused, you know, sort of single industry place where tech is it. And if you sell your company for $500 million, you're clearly not at the top. And it seems like everybody is focused on that climb. Whereas, you know, New York is, a multi-industry place. New York is a fun place to to live if you've sold your company for $500 million. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, so long as there is private equity and finance and theater and, and you know, um, uh, the ad industry and all that, there's always someone doing something different or bigger or whatever. You know, you could sell your company for untold amount of money and still have difficulty getting Hamilton tickets, right? And, and so, so on that on that note, actually, that's a good segue into a, a question that I've been pondering, and, and maybe you would have your perspective on this. So one of my observations is that we are in 2017, right? The internet is now mm -hmm. more than 20 years old, and uh, lots of stuff have already been built, and nowadays there aren't so many wide open opportunities out there. But there are many, many niche opportunities. And some of these businesses actually forget $500 million exit. I'm talking about opportunities where you build something for a small amount of capital, one or two million, and sell it for 10 to 15 million. You have something even smaller, maybe invest 250K to 500K and sell it for five to 10 million. These opportunities exist. And the question is, and, and I'm actually starting to talk to investors who are some investors who are focusing in on some of these in, in, you know, opportunities as well. What is your take on these kinds of opportunities? Would you invest in stuff like this? Well, you know, a, a five to ten million dollar outcome is, is still fairly small, but it's 
it's too large to uh, not be a, a serious consideration when a company is, is buying you. So part of the issue is that um, it's just as easy to buy a company for $10 million as it is to buy a company for $200 million, or, or frankly, just as hard. And so when you, you think about trying to get the time and attention of acquirers, uh, frankly, it's, it's, it's not easy, and, and many entrepreneurs think of it as easy. It's like, oh, well, I'll just sell this for, you know, whatever smaller amount. And, and, and those deals are not necessarily easy to do because, frankly, they're, they're not career-making for any of the corporate development people involved. And so they can be difficult sales as well. But I'll, I'll answer with a spin on, on what you're talking about and, and say that, you know, there, there are, I think, a lot of companies that, you know, maybe after a seed round plus a smaller A, you know, maybe five to six million dollars of total financing could probably become very profitable businesses that, that don't mm -hmm. need a lot of future dilution. And That's I think right. those companies represent a really interesting opportunity because if you did the math on a company that took $5 million of investment and got to $100 million outcome, you know, that is probably... It's a very good outcome, yeah. That's as good as a $500 million acquisition if you're in the... The, you know, if you're a founder or if you're a seed round investor, depending on yeah. you know, what price you got in. Um, Absolutely. And, and pricing really matters. Pricing matters. I mean, the difference between going in at a $3 million valuation versus a $5 million valuation makes a really yeah. big difference in your overall yeah, outcome. Different. And so yeah. I, I think there are a lot of interesting opportunities along along those lines. And I'm, I'm We are very bullish on the smaller, uh, you know, capital intense, uh, capital efficient deals that get, you know, a, a good shot at being nicely exited with good economics, good um, outcomes for everybody in the deal investors as well as entrepreneurs. We love those kinds of opportunities and we we encourage uh, and support our, our entrepreneurs aggressively on those uh, because I think, you know, as I said earlier, unicorns are few and far between. So if you have your eyes set on only doing unicorns, you're not going to get very far because you're going to stumble and, and basically you're going to crash and burn. Well, and I tell a lot of companies that, you know, that they're, I, I probably turn away just as many companies because not that they don't have a good idea, but because they frankly shouldn't raise any money for what they have. Yeah, that's you know, right. Um, there is that and, category and should, as well that should used to be it. just plain bootstrap companies. Yes. Sure. Yeah, and we support those as well. They're obviously not ones that we send to investors, but they, they're they perfectly viable businesses, and, and that's fine. Our philosophy is entrepreneurship equals customers' revenues and profits. Financing and exit are optional. Sure. Sure. Well, very good, Charlie. It was great talking with you, and uh, we look forward to keeping in touch. All right. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Bye-bye.